You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, if you guys want to start finding your way back to your seats, that'd be great. Hopefully you guys got a tasty Christmas cookie there. I saw at least a few people making Christmas cookie sandwiches with the frosting, so... Uh, if there's some left, you can go over and make yourself a Christmas cookie sandwich. Uh, but if you want to turn in, in your Bibles to John chapter 12, that's what it'll be. So John chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 42 through 47 today, which if you use one of the hardback black Bibles there in the back, you can uh, turn to page 899. So if you want one of these, feel free to grab some off the back table. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take this with you. This is our gift to you. The words will appear on the screen behind me as well if you don't have a Bible in your hand. But uh, we're going to continue in our series today, our Advent series, which we've called For This Reason I Have Come. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a statement like that at least seven different times. And so we've isolated a handful of those. And for each of the four Sundays of Advent, we've looked at one of them. And one of the things I've mentioned uh, several times throughout the series, uh, I'm going to mention it one last time. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 64% of people will report being affected by holiday depression. So that's two out of three of you in this room will uh, experience this after the holidays. And it's often triggered by financial, emotional, relational, physical stress of the holidays. And so what happens is we eat more and we sleep less, we spend more and we pray less. And In the midst of a holiday that's meant to help us see Jesus more clearly, we get to the end of it and we often feel further from him. And I keep mentioning this because in a couple of weeks, when you feel the letdown, I don't want you to be surprised. I want you to be prepared. Here's what I know. All of us will experience the busyness in one way or another. Many of us probably already do. And many of us will experience that emotional letdown afterward. And so I've been trying to prepare you. We've been trying to prepare ourselves throughout Advent to focus our minds a little more clearly on why Jesus came. And hopefully as a result, Christmas will lead to more joy and worship than it does sorrow and sadness. In our passage this week, the phrase, for this reason I have come, will show up two different times in two different ways. And they may not be connected in the way that you think. We all have ways of seeing the world that need to be corrected by Jesus. We all have parts of our view of reality that are not in alignment with the way God has said his world works. And so Jesus came to correct these wrong assumptions and to save us from their consequences. That's what we'll see in our text today. So if you found John chapter 12, let me read and you can follow along. It says this. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to to judge the world, but to save the world. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. And right now, we ask that through your word, you would be helping us to see more clearly, that you would bring light into our darkness, and that our minds would be reframed and reshaped according to your word. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever. And so here as we open it, God, we ask for your help by your spirit. Would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to begin today by imagining a a window frame. So picture a window frame. There are all sorts of different shapes and sizes of windows. Some are round, others square, some large, some small. And inside of the window frame is, of course, the window itself, through which we look out and see the world around us. Depending on the size and the shape of the window, it will change the way that we see the world outside of our home. And I want us to use this concept of a frame to help us understand something about our own lives. Like a window frame, we all have a view of reality, filled with certain assumptions and certain hypotheses about the way that the world works, and through this frame of reality, we see the world. And the lifelong work of those who follow Jesus is to have our frame of reality more and more in alignment with the frame of reality that God has given us. That is the aim of what we're doing right now. Each week when I preach, that's one of our goals. As we open our Bibles, is to help us have our view of reality shaped by what God has said in his word. But this reframing is not something that happens just kind of one time and then we're finished. It doesn't happen all at once. I'm under no illusion that right now we're going to figure everything out and solve all of our problems. But my hope each time when we hear God's word preached that we will be changed Each time, our minds will be reframed a little bit, and more and more will come into alignment with what God has told us about this world. Let me give you just a really simple illustration of how our view of reality works. I heard this from someone else at one point. It helps me even in my parenting. So our kids have these toy magnet tiles that they use to build certain structures, and we have a lot of magnet tiles, plenty of magnet tiles for them all to play together, and yet they will fight over them about who gets which magnet tile and which color of magnet tile. And so sometimes I need to help my kids reframe the situation. And so in their fights, they're usually operating out of a frame of scarcity, a kind of me versus them mentality. And my work as a parent is to help them reframe that view, to help them work out their conflict from a frame of abundance and provision, to help them see that there's plenty to go around. They can be generous toward one another. If they begin from an assumption that only one person's going to have a good time, only one person is going to get what they want, then they'll fight over the limited resources in front of them to ensure that it is them. But if they learn to begin from an assumption that they can both have a good time, they can both enjoy their play, they'll find ways to share together and play together well. And all of this begins with their frame of reality, the way that they see the world, the assumptions that they have. But here's something that we all have in common, whether adults or children. It takes a long time for our view of reality, this frame, to change. So let me set the record straight. My example that I just shared about my kids does not always go very well. Not always very patient in the way that I help them to reframe their situation. And they don't always respond the way that I would hope. They have never said back to me, oh, I see now, Dad. Yes, there's plenty to go around. Here, sibling. 
Dad has reframed my reality and now I want to be generous, right? They, that's not how they respond. Never happened, never will. There are plenty of times they just don't listen or other times where I think they listen and I walk away and the first thing I hear is, but I want the green tile. And so it takes time, a long time. I'm trying to set the sermon up in this way because we're going to see in our passage and through the work of Jesus, there are two frames of reality that we can live under. Everyone is living under one or the other. The first is a frame of condemnation. This frame is the one that brings with it consequences for our actions, and it is the one that we experience because of the reality of selfishness and idols and sin in the world. This is a frame that Jesus came to redeem. And the second is the frame of the cross. This frame sees our lives not through our condemnation and judgment, but through God's grace. This is the true story that God is writing in the world, that Jesus came to save us. And here's what I want you to hear in the sermon today, that living under the frame of the cross will require Jesus to confront our darkness with his light. He's here to bring a change, to reframe our understanding of the world. And there are three ways that Jesus wants to confront our view of reality today. First is to reframe our motivations. And second is to reframe true belief. And third, to reframe our condemnation. So the first is to reframe our motivations. Uh, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, no group of people fought with him more than the religious leaders. But that doesn't mean that they were all opposed to him, or at least not all in such an extreme way. As it says in verse 42, some of the authorities even believed. However, the authorities that John is talking about in our passage uh, would not openly associate with Jesus. And that's what it means by the word confess there in verse 42, to openly associate and be honest about their belief in Jesus. Now, we do see some truly positive examples of Pharisees who did openly associate with Jesus, like Nicodemus in John 7, when he stands up for Jesus to the other Pharisees. Or at the end of John's gospel, at risk of their own reputation, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took responsibility for Jesus' burial. But in our passage, John is making a point to tell us about authorities who believed in Jesus but refused to open it or openly acknowledge that belief publicly. And so he is not talking on the one hand about people like Nicodemus, nor is he on the other hand talking about those most critical and opposed to Jesus. He's talking about people who maybe wanted Jesus to be real, maybe even believed in some of his miracles, but would not acknowledge it to the ones who hated him. And this is something that we all have to navigate in our personal relationships. We need to ask ourselves, am I willing to be associated with Jesus or not? Am I willing to have that known? I was with a group of pastors this past week, and we were acknowledging how much easier it is sometimes to stand up here behind the pulpit to be bold and to stand with Jesus. I am here because I am supposed to tell you what God's word says. You are here because you want to hear what God's word has to say. In this way, I have it kind of easy to publicly associate with Jesus. But every week we go into our daily lives where we have to navigate this with interpersonal relationships, coworkers and family and siblings, parents at the playground or neighbors across the street. And I want to ask you to evaluate your own willingness to openly associate with Jesus. Maybe here's a couple questions for you that you could even ask yourself as a bit of an assessment. The first would be, do I, or do the people I regularly interact with know that I follow Jesus? Are they aware of that? That's a great first step in just making that known. 
Or a second question, do I intentionally steer conversations away from certain parts of my life so that I can avoid having to talk about my association with Jesus? And in asking these questions, I'm not necessarily trying to get you to like Jesus juke him into every conversation in ways that feel maybe unnatural or awkward at times. But the aim of John telling us about this in this passage, about these authorities, is that he wants to say something about their motivation. He wants to tell us something about their hearts. He gives us a heart-level assessment of the situation in verse 42, when he says, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were motivated by their desire for the position, their approval, or the approval of others, the privilege that they had. They didn't want to lose it. They loved the glory that they got from their position. They loved the benefit of their privilege. They loved the affirmation of others' good opinion of them. And they didn't want to risk it through association with Jesus. They didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. This is what is meant by the glory of man. It is all the benefits that come from flowing in the stream of humanity's current assessment of reality. If we say the right things, believe the right things, affirm the right things, then we think to ourselves we can fit in. And as a result, we will get certain benefits. We'll be liked, we'll get jobs, we'll get promotions, we'll get included by our neighbors. And in the end, the the authorities here decided that the glory of man was better than the glory of God. They were living under the frame of condemnation, not under the frame of the cross. And the reason that chasing the glory of man is in the frame of condemnation is because we will never outrun our desire for other people's approval. We will always be chasing the newest trend, the newest way of thinking, always afraid that fresh condemnation will come from them if we haven't kept up with the way that I'm supposed to think. A couple of years ago, Netflix released this new documentary about the life of Taylor Swift called Miss Americana. And as many critics have pointed out about this documentary, it felt a bit curated, or actually remarkably curated, for someone who was trying to tell a story based around breaking free from needing other people's approval. She grew up doing everything she did for the applause of others, becoming the person that others wanted her to be, creating the perfect image of the perfect little girl. And so she frames her story as though she's matured beyond wanting the approval of others. She's going to be her own person, true to herself, But as I watched the documentary, I couldn't help feeling like she had just shifted the stream in which she was swimming in. In reality, she's just a different version of what other people want her to be. And this motivation is inside all of us. Even becoming one of the most successful recording artists of all time will not free you from it. We all want approval. And we can get it from God or we can get it from other people. One will last forever. The other will be lost in a moment of time. One is based on someone else's accomplishments, the accomplishments of Jesus. And the other will require us to constantly perform for others. See, in reality, we all want approval and glory. God has put that in us. The question is, where are we getting it from? And one of the ways we need to reframe our reality, to reframe our motivations, is to see God's approval rightly because he loves us. He desires us. We talked about that several weeks ago. And because of the cross and our belief in Jesus, God will never reject us. We can gladly associate with Jesus before others, even if we are rejected by them. Because Jesus gladly associated with us on the cross, even though it meant that he would be rejected. Now, after the example of the people who were unwilling to associate with Jesus, Jesus then reframes what true belief looks like. 
So he gives the example of people who said they believed but then wouldn't associate. And he's going to say, this is what belief looks like now in verses 44 and 45. Kind of says the same thing in two different ways. And he connects belief and seeing rightly. Verse 44, Jesus says that if you believe in him, then you believe in the one who sent him. Then in verse 45, if you see him, then you see the one who sent him. In order to believe in Jesus, we must see him rightly. We must see him for who he truly is. And Jesus came as light in verse 46 so that we don't have to remain in darkness, but so that we can see. The frame of the cross operates in the light, and the frame of condemnation operates in darkness. And if we want to reframe our thinking, then we're going to need the light. In John's gospel, the symbol of light is used several different ways and in several different points, but two in particular we see in John chapter 3. It exposes darkness and sin, and it illuminates what is right and good. In John 3, verses 19 and 20, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. This is talking about Jesus, of course. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So it's one of the first things it does. It exposes darkness and sin. And John is naming a reality for us. If you have darkness and sin in you, then you're not always going to like the light very much. Often you won't. As people, we have this natural sense that we do live under condemnation and judgment. And we don't always have a name for it. We don't always necessarily know what it is. We feel the weight of it, though, and we want freedom from it. And here's where the light becomes so frustrating to some people. Because even if we know that we live under condemnation and we want to be free from it, we don't like to admit that we deserve it. And so when our rebellion is exposed, we get angry. If we are in need of constant reformation in our minds, then we should expect that the light of Jesus is going to be constantly shining light in our darkness. If we live under the frame of the cross, then we will welcome that exposure because we want false things to be exposed so that we can repent and confess and change. And on the other hand, if we are living under the frame of condemnation, then we will have to give an account for the darkness and the evil and the sin that is exposed. And that, frankly, is terrifying. The light doesn't just expose what is broken and evil. It also illuminates what is right and what is good. Continuing in John 3, in verse 21, it says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If we come to faith in Jesus, then we will welcome the light because it helps to reframe our reality, it helps us to see more clearly, to expose the darkness. It can be painful to expose the darkness, but leaving it hidden is even worse. If you've ever been camping and the darkness has fallen, then what simple tool has just become your best friend? A flashlight, right? You always wanna have a good flashlight. My kids love to have good flashlights, so I never have a good flashlight because they always want them. But we want good flashlights, right? Because if we're gonna be walking along the path from the tent to the bathroom, then we wanna make sure that the rocks and the roots and all the things that are gonna trip us up can be seen. You need light to help you travel safely. Jesus came to expose the pitfalls of our current frame of reality, to illuminate the path out of the darkness. Whether or not 
we like the light that Jesus brings will depend entirely on the frame of mind that we're living under. If we're looking through the frame of the cross, then when sin is exposed, I can trust I'm not alone in dealing with the sin. Jesus is with me and he will lead me out of the darkness. But if we are looking through the frame of condemnation, then when my sin is exposed, I have only myself to trust in and that is frightening. So let me ask you a question. Do you love the light? How do you respond when your own sin and idols and lies are exposed? And I actually, I want to ask you a question, even give you a moment to reflect on it. What lie is being exposed by the light for you lately? What is something that you feel that God is prompting you to even correct? And I'm, I'm actually encouraging you, if you have a pen and a paper, write it down. If you don't have a pen and paper, pull out your notes app and type it into your phone. But what do you feel like God's spirit is helping to expose and correct, even in your frame of reality? Another way of asking this question might be like this. Is there something about your view of God that you feel him wanting to help correct? Write it down. Now, we're not going to have time to reframe all those things right now together. But if we believe that Jesus came as light and that he wants to expose darkness then together let's trust that Jesus will help you see more clearly in this area that you just wrote down and that he will, by his spirit, lead you out of light and in, or out of darkness and into light. The third way that Jesus wants to confront our view of reality is to reframe our condemnation. The phrase that we've been isolating throughout this series is, for this reason I have come. And something like that phrase occurs twice in this passage. The first one we just talked about in verse 46 when Jesus says, I have come into the world as light. And the second is here in verse 47, where it says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. And here's where the phrase comes, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So he says it in the negative way. He, doesn't, he didn't come for judgment. He came to save the world. Why did Jesus come? We'll say it in the positive way. He came to save the world, not to judge the world. Now, it's important that we understand what Jesus is saying here because we can get some weird ideas about what judgment means and what it doesn't mean. And we don't like to talk about judgment very much. We don't like to think of ourselves as living under judgment or under condemnation or us deserving that. For example, before I became a pastor, I spent six years working in student life at two different universities. One of them was a state institution. The other was a private Christian school. And part of my job was to work as a judicial officer for the school, which meant that when students violated the student code of conduct, then I would need to meet with them to understand the violation and then decide on a consequence. And here's what I found, that it was a lot easier at a state university than it was at the Christian school. At the secular school, when students violated the student code of conduct, which they had agreed to follow when they were admitted to the university, they would usually acknowledge their own behavior and then accept the consequences for their behavior. At the private Christian school, when the student violated the student code of conduct, which they also agreed to follow when they were admitted to that Christian university, they would sometimes accept the consequence, but more often, I had several students say to me, wait, I'm gonna get a consequence? Didn't Jesus say not to judge people? Wasn't Jesus full of grace? Why am I getting a consequence? And it is alarming that they had so misunderstood the reality of judgment and grace as applied to their relationship to that school. They were operating out of a mode that assumed that they should get off for free for their behavior because Jesus came to save and not to judge. 
but they had committed a or they had committed to a certain standard of behavior when they agreed to attend that university. So when they have violated those standards, they also were due to receive certain consequences. See, here again, we see how light shining on people's sin can be aggravating for us sometimes. When someone gets caught violating an agreed-upon standard of conduct, they will sometimes get angry for their consequence. And here's why Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world, because we were already living under the frame of condemnation and judgment. It was clear we had already deserved condemnation and judgment for our rebellion against God. Like the student code of conduct that is meant to govern the behavior of university students and becomes the standard then by which their behaviors are judged, God has given us a standard by which we are judged. He has given us a code of conduct through his word, and we are all guilty of violating that standard. When Jesus said that he did not come to judge the world, it is because we're already living under judgment. We were already experiencing the consequences. We experience the consequences when we bury ourselves under the burden of chasing others' approval, like the authorities in verse 43. We experience the consequence when we feel the pain of our sin being exposed by the light. And when God looked at the world and saw our need, he knew that what we needed was not a judge, but a savior. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read this about Jesus at his birth. Matthew 1, 18 through 21, it says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here's the part I want us to hear, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us because we needed saving Part of living in the frame of the cross is being willing to admit that we need saving, that we deserve judgment, but that God has offered us grace. Seeing reality through the frame of the cross requires the humility to acknowledge our own sin and our own rebellion. I was meeting with my men's discipleship group this past week, and I confess that I'm not always very aware of my own sin, that I do not always feel the weight of it enough. And I, I had said this phrase, I said, maybe there's some pride in there somewhere. And thankfully, this dear brother says back to me, not maybe, Jeremy. <laughs> if you're having a hard time seeing your own sin, there is definitely pride in there. And he said, if you ask God to reveal that sin to you, it's going to hurt, but he will. Because we don't always like the light to shine on our darkness and our sin. But that's one of my prayers now. Lord, help me see my idols and my sin. Help me see my rebellion. Not because I want to feel terrible about myself, right? That's not the point. It's not just about feeling bad about myself, but seeing my need for a savior. The frame of the cross also will require the confidence to know that Jesus came to save, to believe that he is who he said he was, and that the only one who did not deserve to be judged was judged in our place so that we could be saved. Now, I asked you earlier, what do you need the light of the gospel to reframe for you today? Perhaps yours is pride, like me, or maybe it's something else entirely, but whatever it is, Jesus died so that it will not lead to your condemnation, 
but that God will meet your need with his grace. The frame of reality we are looking through will change everything about our lives. The life of the Christian is a constant reformation of our heart and our minds to live under the frame of the cross and to reject the frame of condemnation that no longer defines us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.